Hello, and welcome to another edition of The More the Merrier with Donna G. Joining me for the hour is Neil Armstrong, editor, writer, and the helm of Neil Armstrong and Associates. He's joining me today to discuss Black literature, as well as some happenings for Black History Month. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Donna G. It's it's my pleasure to, to be your guest. I invited you on the show because... You are involved with so many activities and you're so well read. And for Black History Month, I wanted that um, that combination and I wanted the personal. We're going to be talking about books um, from your aunt's library, which makes this personal. So thank you so much for being willing to share um, her library uh, with us today. You're welcome. To clarify what I have pulled from these books are from my my local, my my personal library. My 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 aunt's is is vast, but includes some of these books as well. A name that I've been familiar with for many years is George Eliot Clark. Mm-hmm. Please introduce us to black activist, scientist, icon, the autobiography of Dr. Howard D. McCurdy. Okay, and uh, George Eliot Clark was also the poet laureate at uh, the City of Toronto. So I was actually in City Hall earlier this week and saw a whole section in the Toronto Library there that has books that poet laureates of the city have written. Many years ago, George was the parliamentary aide for Dr. Howard McCurdy when he was a member of parliament for Windsor. And George, many years later, became the one that Dr. McCurdy chose six months before he passed. He wanted George to be the person to edit and complete his autobiography. He was writing his autobiography for a while and was almost finished. Uh, before passing, but seven months before, he had asked George to be the one to to edit his autobiography, and 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 so what resulted was what you just shared: black activist, scientist, icon, the autobiography of Doctor Howard D. McCurdy with George Eliot Clark, and I had the pleasure of of interviewing uh, Doctor Brenda uh, McCurdy, uh, the widow of. Dr. Howard McCurdy about the book recently. And it really tells the story of his his journey from London, Ontario to 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 Windsor, to Amherstburg, uh, to to how he named. So the federal NDP party was named by him. And it's an interesting story how he came up with that name from an experience with his his first daughter. Leslie McCurdy. Also, he ran for the leadership of the of the federal NDP. He did so uh, being the second black person to do so after Rosemary Brown in the in BC, who had done so a few years before him. But uh, what he documents there is a life of activism. He wasn't afraid to speak out. Uh, he shares in the book about being racially profiled at the border, um, the US-Canada border, uh, all the activism that he did 
with the the national uh, Canadian body. There is a national body which predates, uh, I think it was the very first national organization of Black people, the National Black Coalition of Canada. He was one of the founders of that that organization. And so there's a lot. There, it, It's rich with stories of activism as it happened in Windsor, in Hammersburg, in London, in Toronto, across Canada, and uh, well worth reading. And and how is it how is it sectioned, um, Neil, in terms of um, approachability by the average reader? I told Dr. Brenda McCurdy that husband has had the gift of the gab because he was very fluent. In, um, he was he, he was a scientist. He was a, a chemistry professor, v- very fluent in in how he he writes. And so it's it's he you know he starts from the humble beginnings, and goes into the the struggles in the political circles. And and he called he's not afraid. That's a thing of calling names as well and critiquing various people. So there are names in here that I know I've met. And 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 I after reading, I wonder, have they read this book? Do they even know that they're mentioned in this book? <laughs> but, he was, but but he was bold. He he wasn't holding anything back. And uh and and yes, and I thought it was interesting that the the launch of this book happened uh, a day before there was a, a state uh, funeral for Ed Broadbent, who was the leader of the national the federal ndp party when when howard mccurdy ran for when when howard mccurdy served as as mp then yes it happened immediately before so i just thought that the timing was was quite apt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so neil on next on your list is in the upper country yes i kept hearing about in the upper country and and Kai Thomas and I, I said okay eventually I'll get around to reading reading this book and I was helping to organize uh, a book event at Blackhurst Cultural Center in Toronto with uh, Kai Thomas of this book and when I read it I wanted to make sure that I was familiar with the book before asking a colleague to do the interview and it's it's a powerful novel it's uh, the the fates of two unforgettable women, one beginning a journey of reckoning and self-discovery, the other completing her last vital act intertwined in this powerful novel set at the terminus of the Underground Railroad. And what Kai has done in here is that he weaves the history of, of, of various communities as it relates to Black communities uh, that were active, played a major roles in the Underground Railroad and puts that in, in the mouth, so to speak, of an old woman who is imprisoned and she is condemned to die. But a journalist is put in her cell to hear her story. And the story that she has to share is powerful. And all kinds of unraveling happens and revelations happen as you hear her story. So in the 1800s in Dunmore, a Canadian town settled by people fleeing enslavement in the African South, young 
Lencinda Martin works as a crusading black journalist. One night, a slave hunter is shot dead by an old woman who recently arrived. When the old woman refuses to flee, Lencinda is tasked with gathering testimony before she can con be condemned for the crime. But the old woman doesn't want to simply confess. Instead, she proposes a barter, a story for a story. So begins an extraordinary exchange that reveals a tapestry of interwoven histories, challenges, Lencinda's notions of her past and suggests that the old woman may carry a secret that could reshape her destiny. Mm. Traveling along the path of the Underground Railroad from Virginia to Michigan, from the indigenous nations around the Great Lakes to the Black refugee communities of Canada in the upper country weaves together unlikely stories of love, survival, and familial upheaval that map the interconnected history of the peoples of North America in an entirely new and resonant way. And what it does very well as well is to show the allyship between the indigenous nations of the Great Lakes and Black, Black refugee communities. That's quite strong in it. And one of the things that Kai Thomas said he definitely wanted to explore. Ooh, this is something that uh, I definitely would like to explore. So that mm -hmm. is In the Upper Country by Kai Thomas. Since you mentioned um, Blackhurst, let's talk about Welcome to Blackhurst, an iconic Toronto neighborhood. I was I was actually involved in, in that, in this book. I, I edited it. And uh, what it does is do documents some of the history as well as the, the people who lived in the Bathurst and Bloor area, a very thriving Black community. Ita Sadu, who is the managing director of Blackhurst Cultural Center, uh, wanted to make sure that that history and, and presence is not forgotten with the build of the new Mervish village in that area. And so worked with the developers to put on an exhibition some years ago called Welcome to Blackhurst. And this is now a documentation of some of the history as well as people from, from, from that time. So it it actually, and, and some of the people who are still, still around. So it actually opens with an introduction by journalist Royce and James and Royce and documents some of the history of the area because he lived nearby and he worked at a contrast newspaper, which was a pioneering a pioneering newspaper in the city, founded in 1969 by Al Hamilton, and which had the tagline, the eyes, ears, and voice of the Black community. And I thought it's interesting because Diane Liverpool, uh, who worked at Contrast, wrote a, a poem, and I'm just going to share it, that sort of gives an idea of what Contrast was about. It's called 28 Lenox Street. What was black and white and red all over? It came from 28 Lenox Street. What made politicians quake and police sit up in their seat? It came from 28 Lenox Street. What launched many a journalistic career? and was the eyes, ears, and voice of the Black community without any fear. It came from 28 Lenox Street. What did we need then to face the challenges we still meet? Contrast. 
It came from 28 Lenox Street. So this uh, book has profiles of, of various people, Albert Jackson, the first letter carrier in Toronto, Austin Clark, a well-known novelist and journalist who at one point worked at Contrast. Uh, it has Beverly Maskell, a well-known businesswoman who had her business on Bathurst Street, Zenena Candy, a former uh, MPP and minister in the Ontario government is profiled here as well. Charles Roach, lawyer and activist. Deborah Brown, who is uh, one of the early inhabitants of, of, of Toronto and lived on Bathurst Street. Donald Moore, community icon and trailblazer. And uh, it has so many more people in here. Harry Gary Sr., uh, Akila Wright, who owned One Love Vegetarian, uh, Judge George Carter, Dr. Kenneth Montague, and, and, and of course, the owners of Third World Books and Crafts, Leonard and Gwendolyn Johnston, among others. There are many, there are many featured in here, Makeda Silvera, um, Molly Johnson, and others. Yes, and um, we should also, uh, you know, mention the fact that uh, the re the naming of Blackhurst. Mm -hmm. Who came up with that? That was Ita's. To hear the story from her, she remembered people coming to the bookstore that she co-owns with her husband Miguel San Vicente, telling her that you know the bookstore, a different book list, was was more than a bookstore. It was a it was a cultural hub. They saw it as a, a cultural center for them as they came to to gather not only to buy books but to chat and and at the various events and so out of that came this idea that we also are seen as a cultural center. So then the idea came to have what was then called a different booklist cultural center, and it it morphed into well. There was a vibrant Black community here, and this is the iconic Bathurst and Bloor. So we'll call this Blackhurst Cultural Center the People's Residence, which is completely different from the bookstore. The bookstore is an entity by itself, and then you have the, the Cultural Center, which has a board of directors and various activities as it relates to community. I think it's a wonderful name, um, you know, coming to Canada as a child in the, in the 70s and my mom taking me to uh, to Bloor and Bathurst where all those flourishing um, businesses used to be. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when I was in university going to third world books, um, because I was always focusing on... Um, it, you know, in my Canadian history, I focused on, you know, the Black folks um, mm -hmm. that were here and Third World Books, you know, you know, I, I still have visions of that place in my head and, you know, ever so grateful for it. And you mentioned, you know, Beverly Maskell and, you know, got my hair products and, you know, cosmetics for Black women because it was so scarce back in the day. So Blackhurst mm -hmm. is rich in um, that area is so rich and steeped in black culture that I'm glad that Ita fought for it. 
mm -hmm. um, and that it's still there and it's mm -hmm. a, still a vital part of the community. So yes. that's Welcome to Blackhurst, an iconic Toronto neighborhood. Now, I want to move on, Neil. It's a, a novel uh, that's translated from the French by Frank Wynne, mm -hmm. Standing Heavy, a novel by, is it Gauze? Is that how he pronounces it? That's how I, that's how I pronounce it. Okay, yes. so yeah. Standing Heavy. Tell me about Standing Heavy. Standing Heavy is uh, written by... Gauze, who was actually shortlisted for the International Booker Prize 2023, so last year. Uh, he When he wrote it, he wrote it uh, a few years, well, before. And um, I looked at it and I thought, well, what is Standing Heavy? And then I realized that Standing Heavy is, it, it looks at the colonial experience, essentially, between France and and those who are considered uh, subjects of the French influence uh, coming into the country and and trying to exist. So these um, African French African refugees, they came into Paris, and all they could find as work was was to become security guards. And standing heavy is another word that they use. And well, there's a fr French word for it, but it essentially means that's the work that they do. They're usually standing heavy around department stores, buildings, etc., cetera, uh, as, as security guards. And it looks at three main, three characters and, and looks at three different periods. So you have the 1960s, where Ferdinand arrives in Paris from Côte d'Ivoire, ready to take on the world and become a big somebody. Then there's the 1990s. It's the golden age of immigration. And Osiri and Kasum navigate a Paris on the brink of momentous change. And then the 2010s in a Sephora on the... In an area of, of Paris, a security guard observes the curious habits of those who come to worship at this altar of consumerism. All over the city, they are watching. Black men paid to stand guard, invisible among the wealthy financiers, and yet the only ones who truly see. From various areas in the city, Ferdinand, Osiri, and Kasum find their way as undocumented workers amidst political infighting and the ever-changing landscape of immigration policy. Fast-paced and funny, a poignant and sharply satirical, Standing Heavy is a searing deconstruction of colonial legacies and capitalist consumption and an unforgettable account of everything that passes under the security guards, all-seeing eyes. Now, how this novel is written is also interesting because it's written it's written like you are viewing things through the eyes of a camera so i'm i'm just picturing the omnipresent uh, present cameras that are in department stores all all over cities etc that are watching us as we shop and all that sort of thing and and uh, Gauze is is telling the story as if he is a security guard seeing all of this in these three people and, and, and you know, sharing what's happening in the perfume department of a store and who goes into to 
use what and who tries to sneak things out and and all that sort of thing. So it, it's very it's it's a very visual novel, and I just thought it was it's it, it's interesting how how he has written it. At times, like you're 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 logging uh, your activities for the day, that kind of thing. So quite an interesting form that he uses. Yeah, um, that's definitely different. Moving on now to Finding Edward by Sheila Murray. Okay, Sheila Murray is from. I met her a few maybe months ago, and she's from here in Ontario. And Finding Edward takes place it, it, it's it's a novel that goes from here to the uk to jamaica to i believe the us for a short time and then comes back here and it it, it tells a wonderful story of becoming by a young man who is is trying to to find his way in life so a chance encounter with a bad lady named patricia leads Cyril to a cardboard suitcase full of photographs and letters dating back to the early 1920s. Cyril is drawn into the letters and their story of a white mother's struggle to come to terms with the need to give up her mixed race baby, Edward. Abandoned by his white father as a small child, Cyril feels a compelling connection to the boy and begins to look for the rest of Edward's story. So as Cyril goes on this journey of trying to find out the history of Edward, uh, this person who he doesn't know anything about, things start unfolding about Edward's history. There are connections that are made to Cyril's own story. And I, I, how Sheila does that is, 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 is quite clever. As I read it, I was thinking of places that she mentioned here in Jamaica. And I'm thinking, okay, um, like a travelogue and as well in England and how things unfolded in the novel caught my attention and left me, left me wanting to, to hear more about, you know, about Cyril and his life. Definitely worth, worth the read. Uh, mm. Carlos Anthony's Shades of Black. What Carlos drew you to that? Was- well, I'd say Carlos himself did, or maybe I, I should say the publisher drew me to his his book because I know that Lorimore has been writing a number of or putting out a number of books that are targeted at at young readers, uh, high school students, and uh, and Carlos is one of the the authors um, that it wanted to feature. He's actually a filmmaker. Who, who lives in Windsor. He, filmmaker and author who writes about the experiences that Black men have historically avoided talking about. He has been recognized for his video web series, short story series, published essays and short films that explore themes such as fatherhood, healthy relationships and overcoming addiction. This is his, his first novel. It tells the story of Romero. Romero, a Guyanese Canadian, is a sensitive kid starting at an inner city style school with a large racialized population. He falls in with a friendly crew, but finds himself in trouble when a shot is fired in the school cafeteria and he gets stuck with a gun. Meanwhile, the police, often using brutal tactics and target targeting young black males, try to find out who the shooter was. 
Romero finds himself stuck in a dangerous situation he never anticipated as the gun's owner. A gang member is now on the lookout. Can Romero get rid of the weapon while keeping himself and his family safe? So it explores the whole thing of being young, trying to fit in in the school system and whether or not you're going to be yourself or peer pressure is going to impact you to the extent where you fall in with a certain group. And then that leads to a situation in which there are many questions that you then have to ask yourself and depicts as well a, a very, a very, very strict, very strict parents that he had. And, and so one wonders, you know, how some of the events that unfolded could have happened in his life. But I, I think as well, it was a way of, of rebelling a bit in terms of trying to, to, to seek uh, friendship uh, in school with, with the cool kids. Mm. Sweet as sugar, sweet spelled S-U-I-T-E, mm -hmm. as sugar. That title intrigues me by Camille Hernandez Ramboir. Can you share how the sweet comes in without giving up too much away? What uh, I think she does in here is she compiles a list of, of stories that are challenging various isms in, in, in society. And, and she links it to the colonial history of, of, of sugar and how sugar has um, impacted also the health of people for whom at one point they were working on plantations and, uh, and sugar was the commercial entity that brought a lot in the transatlantic slave trade, et cetera. Looking at the, their present lives and how things have affected them now. To give you an, a, an idea of her, she's a multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, and transnational writer, scholar, and consultant, and divides her time between Toronto and Trinidad and Tobago. So from Win Winnipeg winterscapes to Toronto's condo culture, from Havana's haunted streets to Trinidad's calamitous environs, the stories in Sweet as Sugar are permeated with the violence of colonial histories, personal and intimate, reflecting legacies of abandonment and loss. The veil between the living and the dead is obscured. Chaos becomes a panacea and characters take drastic measures into their own hands. Survivors of all kinds seek strategy and solace. A group of homeless people organize an occupation of vacant condos. A new resident to a disturbing neighborhood tries to make sense of madness. A dog investigates the sudden disappearance of his owner. The five intertwined vignettes in the title story are all set in a Caribbean country where the specter of the sugar plantation haunts everyone. Tying this collection together is the casual brutality of our everyday lives, whether seen through the eyes of an animal, spirit, or human being. Now, one of the stories that she has in here, uh, I told her that when I read it, I, I thought of actually being in former meetings held by the Caribbean Cultural Committee, then organizer of Caribana. She has a story here called The Death, The Death of Caribana. And the story is, in essence, <laughs> a meeting. It, 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 it depicts a meeting being held 
you know, it could easily be a meeting held by the Caribbean Cultural Committee to discuss Caribana and how this person sits there and and is is viewing and 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 responding to everything being said. So you so you actually feel like you're in a meeting. I'll just I'll just share a bit of the, the first lines. Okay. And the death of Caribana is in quotes. The host will al- the host will ad- ad- admit you to the meeting shortly. I don't even know why I came today. After all these years and all the headache and heartache, the backstabbings and the bubble, I really need to sit here and listen to some ac- academic talk about how everything we built, all the blood, sweat and tears, the late nights and long hours, the labors of love, how all that is just dead. Boy, I'm too old for this. Then the voice of somebody comes on. Thanks for coming, everyone. I invited you here today because I wanted to introduce you to a script I'm developing called The Death of Caravana. I know you all, I know you all have some vested interest in this great, amazing festival that we Caribbean people in Canada created, which has persisted for over 50 years. I thought you would be good people to talk to and the people from whom I can elicit feedback for my project. Violet looks tired. It's been a while since I've seen her, but Dawn, this packet, this pandemic hasn't really been good to her. But then again, we all probably look like sh- right now. <laughs> Still, women could have made an attempt to put on some goddamn makeup. So this person <laughs> is in a meeting and they're discussing Caribana and she's observing everybody and critiquing and all that stuff. And I thought, I, I, I told Camille, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we could all uh, relate to that. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, <laughs> Okay, and that is sweet as sugar. Curated by the people, for the people. CIUT 89.5 FM is the sound of your city. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G. Right here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And joining me is in our continued discussion is another uh, campus and community radio person, and that is Neil Armstrong, who I met many years ago when he was the program coordinator at CHRY 105.5. So Neil, um, many years have gone, have passed since we've known each other, but you are my go-to person for a lot of things. You're my man about town which we'll get to in a moment, but I'm loving this discussion we're having about books. Mm -hmm. And we left off with Sweet as Sugar by Camille Hernandez Ramdwar. Mm -hmm. So Neil, take me to uh, Miss Lou, 100 plus voices for Miss Lou, edited by Opal Palmer Adisa. Opal Palmer Adisa, who is now retired, a professor from the University of the West Indies, uh, Mona Campus. And uh, it's interesting that we're discussing this book because just uh, a few days ago, I visited the Harborfront Center during Kumba, the Black History Month celebration there. Well, this year it's called the Black Black Futures Month celebration. And uh, I told one of the workers that I'd like to see Miss Lou's room since it's no longer in the space that I'm accustomed to visiting. And he took me to a new 
quote unquote space uh, where it's bright and and her images are on the walls and it's a space for kids activities and i was i, I was quite pleased uh, with that i say relatively new because he said they actually reopened the space that particular space in July of 2023. I just knew that I wasn't seeing it where it used to be. And it, right. then it was called Miss Lou's Room. Now it's called Miss Lou's Learning Center. Some years ago, I was approached to submit something for this anthology about Miss Lou. And Opal Palmer Disa came up with the idea of, of having... 100 plus voices initially it was 100 but she got more than the 100 in terms of submissions so it was edited to become a hundred plus voices for miss lou poetry tri tributes interviews and essays and because i had interviewed miss lou a number of times when I was at uh, CHRY Radio, as well as uh, when I worked at the Gleaner newspaper, I thought, well, let me reflect on some things from my interviews with her. And so I have an entry in here, and it has a lot of entries from Jamaica, but also from Jamaicans in the diaspora. In here are entries from Lillian Allen, from Lorna Goodison, Clive Walker, Kevin Ormsby, artistic director of, of Cache Dance Company right here in Toronto, Fabian Coverley, Miss Lou's uh, stepson, Pamela Pelt, who along with Fabian Co Coverley are co-executives of the estate of Louise Bennett Coverley. And uh, and it's, it's sectioned off into sections such as Section one, one big family. Section two, reaffirming our culture. Section three, anti-rochise. Section four, engaging in a quarrel with history. And uh, yeah, those are the, the, the four sections. And it's, you know, and, and, and the former prime minister, PJ Patterson, also has uh, a reflection in here of, of, of Miss Lou. Of course, in 2003, at his invitation, Miss Lou was back in Jamaica where she was celebrated throughout the country. And, and so this was really a publication that was to come out uh, on the 100th anniversary of her birthday, but it actually came out, uh, I think, uh, a couple of years later. And so that is, that is what the 100 Voices for Miss Lou is is all about and i know during kumba as well that there is a celebration of miss lou's influence how, how she has shaped verses and chapters uh, that will be held in the miss lou's learning center space at the harborfront center for people who don't know about miss lou mm -hmm. um there might be some young people or just people who are listening to my show who are not from a Caribbean background or from, you know, the diaspora. Can you introduce Miss Lou uh, to them, please? Sure. Her significance. Yes. Uh, Jamaica's cultural ambassador, someone who was considered the mother of Jamaican culture, someone who lived here in Toronto for almost 20 years. 
lived in Scarborough with her husband, Eric Coverley, who passed uh, some years before her. Miss Lou was who popularized Jamaica's language, Patois, as, as some call it, some will say Jamaican, the Jamaican Creole. Uh, Miss Lou was bold in when she was studying in England at the Royal Academy for the Arts, going to a session at the BBC. And, you know, at that time, international students would send greetings back to their family in Jamaica at Christmas time. And she said, you know, they would say, hello, mama, hello, papa. It's cold here in in London and all that sort of thing. And she wasn't inclined to do any of that. So she went up to the mic and she said, uh, like my family, my family and friends, uh, it, it cool, it cool, a London time, me hungry and all that kind of thing. But she did it in Patois. And resulting from that was an offer by someone who was in the leadership of the BBC for her to have a show at the BBC. And, 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 and so she was one of the first Caribbean people with her program at, at the BBC. And from then on, she was also being read in the, the Gleaner newspaper at the time. In fact, there were people who would berate her because Patwa was what she was writing in, in, in the Gleaner. And uh, people would berate her. And her mother said, you know, if you, if you can... If you can do this as well as I saw her, 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 then then you should continue doing it. So ignore all the naysayers out there. And she continued doing what she was doing. She talks about being on a tram car as as a young girl. A tram car at the time, well, is is pretty similar to to uh, the the streetcars here. But tram was what was the mode of transportation in Jamaica many years ago. And she stepped on as a young girl and. It was a situation where the market women would sit at the back of the tram car and they saw her step up and thought she was coming to find a seat somewhere in their midst. Uh, so she heard uh, one say to the other, spread out yourself, Liza. One dress up woman look like she see the little space and one poke her side inside. Spread out, spread out yourself. And, 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 and right away she said she knew that had to be the language. That had to be the, the story, the way she wanted to express herself and to write and, and to tell the stories of, of these market women. She was highly influenced by that. So subsequently, Miss Lou was born in terms of the the persona. And it so happens that her husband, Eric Coverley, Chalk Talk, was who paid her her first, uh, for her first gig, which was at Cope Methodist Church in, in Kingston many years ago. So she has written many books. She has appeared on radio, has radio shows. She has traveled the world uh, doing various shows and is beloved by many. And uh, passed away, sadly, in July of 2006 here in Toronto and was given a national uh, funeral in Jamaica and uh, is buried alongside her husband, who was exhumed so that he could be beside her at the National Heroes Park in Kingston, Jamaica. So that's Miss Lou. Songs of Irie by Asha Ashanti Bromfield. Um, share about that, please, Neil. 
well, it, you know, it's interesting how how you have juxtaposed both books because I thought, yes, here it is that Miss Lou gave legitimate recognition to to the Jamaican Creole, and Songs of Irie has the dynamics that Miss Lou would have been would have experienced in terms of people looking down on the language that was native to Jamaicans versus the English language that was 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 not. Um, but that is what essentially I think Ashanti, Asha Ashanti Broomfield, Bromfield does in this book. Uh, she explores a friendship of two two girls in the and and puts them places them in the 1970s 1976 when Jamaica was was hot in terms of politics um it's 1976 and warring political parties in Jamaica have made the divisions between the poor and the wealthy even wider Irie and Jilly come from very different backgrounds but the two bond through a shared love of reggae, spending time together at Iris' father's record store, listening to so-called rebel music, and that rebel music is reggae. A budding romance, romance between the two girls complicates things further as the push and pull between their two lives becomes impossible to bear. For Irie, fighting with her words and her voice is her only option. Blood is shed on the streets in front of her every day. But Jilly, from the heart of Kingston, where lush mansions remain safe behind gates, can always choose to escape. Can their bond survive this impossible divide? Asha Ashanti Bromfield has written a compelling, emotional, and heart-rending story of a friendship during wartime and what it means to fight for your words, your life, and the love of your life. And it's interesting because we are talking about this book in a few days after uh, the celebration of Bob Marley's 79th birthday and what's officially recognized as Bob Marley, declared by the city of Toronto as Bob Marley Day in Toronto. And she starts with a, a quote from Marley, uh, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds, which... Of course, we know that um, that quote also came from a presentation that Marcus Garvey made in Nova Scotia many years before. But the preamble of this book says the political war that happened in Jamaica in the 1970s was the direct result of colonization by the British. The murder and senseless violence that occurred was the result of a broken system, one built off the suffering that had been inflicted onto African people for centuries. The enslavement, rape, murder, and torture by colonial powers resulted in a broken and politically divided Jamaica after they received independence from the British in the 1960s. Africans were stolen from their native land, brought to another, separated from their families and their native tongue, and then forced to put the pieces back together after centuries of brutality. But when independence came in 1962, the island was divided. Political greed, corruption, and class division ignited a civil war in the streets of Jamaica. Rastafarianism, a 
spiritual approach to being African in the new world emerged in Jamaica in the 1930s under Marcus Garvey's Pan-African movement. The Rastafari revelation was spread out of a cry for emancipation, peace, and liberation for the Black race. The spiritual resistance and back to Africa identity gave birth to the music that spread the beliefs of Rastafarianism around the world. The teachings of Rastafari tell us we are one eternal love. And in the slums of Jamaica, a new sound was born in rebellion to the political violence and centuries of oppression. Reggae music became the cry for freedom. And, you know, it's the story of Irie, who is from Papines. Her father owns a record store in Papines Square and identifies with a certain political party. And there's Jilly, whose father is a politician and live lives in a well-gated community and has wealth and and what unravels in that relationship, uh, that division of class, the division of language as well, um, because Irie was steeped in, in her patois, uh, Jilly wasn't, and, and just the ramifications as well of the political interference of countries outside of Jamaica to fuel all kinds of things that happened in the 1970s when both parties were vying for, at election time, to lead the country. Moving on, uh, uh, but still staying, staying with the, um, the queer community, defiant mm-hmm. bodies making queer community in the Anglophone Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, Nikolai A. Atai, they pronounce yes. your last name Atai. Okay, Atai. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for intro uh, for including this book mm-hmm. um, in our discussion today. Now, Nikolai is is someone I've known for a number of years. When he was he was studying at the University of Toronto and was working on his PhD, and uh, I know he was traveling a lot throughout the Caribbean because he wanted to tell this story that he considered to be a counter narrative to what was dominant then that, you know, there were lots of people who were LGBTQ fleeing the Caribbean to come here and and the US and the UK. And uh, it was as if there wasn't anything happening on the ground with the community there to organize their lives and 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 live and and so this became his dissertation his phd dissertation which he has turned into a book and so what defined bodies making queer community in the anglophone caribbean focuses on are several moments of queer community making across the anglophone caribbean barbados guyana jamaica and trinidad and tobago including legal challenges against caribbean laws drag pageantry kingship formation, kinship formations, and a co-opting of mainstream urban nightclubs and bars, offering readers new ways to understand the ways that queer Caribbean people are responding to the dominant sexual politics in the region. Uh, Nikolai Atai is an assistant professor of ethnic studies at Colorado State University. A few years ago, he was uh, working at the University of Toronto, uh, the university he graduated from, and so what it really does is it 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 tells you know it tells the stories of 
of LGBTQ people who are in Barbados and and what they're involved in in terms of whether it be going to the clubs or uh, there's one called Rum Shops Nightlife and the radical praxis of internal exile and you you see what happens in the, in the rum shop space and how how they negotiate space place making within some of these spaces and uh, there's also uh, one that looks at the situation in 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 Guyana and um, and and so what he does really is he he presents this as countering what he says is the dominant thinking out there that that people are always fleeing from the region and 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 not much is happening in terms of the people who have decided to stay and build a community where they live that's mm -hmm. the yeah that's the essence of, of of this book because we don't really hear those stories yes we hear from the people who have um mm -hmm. had to flee yes some justifiably so but it's nice mm -hmm. to have that balanced narrative mm -hmm. um out there in the world mm -hmm. so neil uh thank you for sharing those books with us now you are my man about town every time i'm on social media i'm like how does neil do it he's at <laughs> one event and another event so please uh please share um some goings on that um that will be happening later this month or some have mm -hmm. that continued but will still be going on uh towards the the middle or later part of this month okay I'd be you glad mentioned to... you mentioned the kumba festival yes and that happens every year at mm -hmm. uh at harbor front the 50th anniversary concert of chicago's ethnic heritage ensemble tell tell us about that because i've seen them they're amazing mm -hmm. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. That is, that is uh, Caliban Arts Theatre. That's that's Frank Francis, who is behind that. And uh, I know that uh, it's it's happening in a space I've I've never been to the the Redwood Theatre, and uh, it's it's you know Frank as uh, someone who creates various events. He is doing this in 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 a space. He has a space now that's called cont context context uh, at which he does many many events like this. But this I realize is in a different space, and it's it's a it's a celebration. It's a celebration of the Chicago's ethnic heritage ensemble. I'm I'm not very familiar with the ensemble, but when you saw them, what was your impression? Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. I was I was blown away, mm -hmm. and I saw them back when Frank Francis had uh, uh, the train mm -hmm. um, on on, Bloor's, on on Bathurst Street. On Bathurst, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I play them, you know, occasionally here on on the sh on my show. Mm -hmm. I haven't played them in a while. I have to mm -hmm. uh, dig them out now. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, I don't want to just be Toronto centric. In Brampton. Um, mm -hmm. flavors and vibes, the peace, love, unity edition. Yes, uh, presented by Jones and Jones in collaboration with, with Brampton on stage. The city of Brampton has been highlighting a number of of uh, performers over the years, and and they've teamed up with Jones and Jones. 
It will feature Jesse Royal, who is a reggae musician from Jamaica. And so he's the main artist. And also joining him will be the Human Rights uh, Band, Omega Mighty. Of course, Omega has been winning awards and, uh, well, yes, or was it Havaya? Let me not confuse Omega Mighty with Havaya Mighty because they're sisters, but Omega Mighty will be featured as well. And Kyra McLean, who was the youngest, the youngest musician to receive a Juno award. I think when he won, he was 14, 14. Mm. And that was a few years ago. Joshua Lucas, who is, is a DJ. Now, Joshua is somebody who the late Denise Jones had said to me, you know, Neil, there's this young guy who I I am bringing on board to play at my events. He's he's a DJ, but you would think he's an old soul. He he knows how to select his music, and he has been appearing at quite a number of Jones and Jones events. So so I'm that's something to look forward to. It's at the Rose Theater on. Thursday, February the 22nd, and they'll have a pre-show mix and mingle at 7 o'clock. But the show starts at 8 p.m. and it's hosted by MC Bondi. Mm -hmm. And on Saturday, February the 17th, mm -hmm. uh, Peel United Cultural Partners celebrating the 22nd annual Black History Concert. Have yes. you been to any of their concerts and can you tell me more about it? I, I have. Uh, in fact, I was honored at one of them uh, several years ago, and uh, and usually it's 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 usually a talent showcase. Uh, it's usually local local acts. So you may have a school perform high yes high school students. You may have a a, a poet, a spoken word artist, and uh, they're usually singers. Uh, there's usually a folk singing group. And a guest speaker. So this year, the guest speaker is the Honorable Justice Dr. Irving Andre. What I find interesting about Irving Andre is that he decided a few years ago to go back to law school to, to get his doctorate. And, and so after doing that, he's back in the court system, but also he writes books so there is a book that he wrote recently about uh, Rosie Douglas, and he has written he has written other books as well. And I thought it's interesting because I don't hear about too many judges that they are sitting on a bench in whatever court, the Ontario Court of Justice, the Superior Court, et cetera, et cetera, and writing as well. And, and he seems to to do that easily. And, and and yeah, so it's 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 a it's a showcase. The Congress, the the United Achievers of Brampton, and the Congress of Black Women Brampton are usually the two who come together to make it the Peel United Cultural Partners to present this this annual concert. And it's twenty two years ago. Well, twenty second anniversary. So they've been doing it for twenty two years. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Jay Douglas is going mm -hmm. to receive the Mabel Helen Rose Foundation Stone Award, mm -hmm. and that's happening Sunday, February the 18th, 11 a.m., mm -hmm. uh, Led to Love, a Black History Month celebration. I'm sure you know about Jay Douglas, so share with uh, my audience, please. I, I do. In fact, I was I was reading this morning a, 
a story that I wrote for the the gleaner, the the Saturday gleaner, and uh, Jamaicans who have hard copies have access to the hard copy of the gleaner on a Saturday can can read it, but it's also online about Jay. The fact that Jay Douglas, who is a veteran musician in Toronto, who came here from Jamaica in 1964 and who I interviewed because he received the Lifetime Achievement Award at the recently held Bob Marley Day Humanitarian Awards at City Hall in Toronto. And then I saw that he was down to receive another award in February, Black History Month. So I said, well, Jay, I have to talk to you about this. And he told me that his mom came in 19 to Canada in 1955 from Jamaica through the West Indian domestic scheme. She came as a domestic worker and he said, you know, it was it was difficult. The uh, form that they had to fill out uh, the questionnaire, but also in what they had to say or not say about themselves. And so she had to say that she was childless when in fact she had four kids. Uh, as many, but, as many, women as many had, to, had do. to do, yes, and 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 so later on he came here, uh, and 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 joined her, and was the front singer for a group called the Cougars. They used to play in various clubs along Young Street. I'm happy that they have various historical signage on Young Street saying this club was here or that club was there, that sort of thing, to give us an idea that Young Street was the hub of a lot of performances, etc. In fact, Jay is on a mural that is on one of the buildings just north of Gerard, off Young, on Young. Uh, he is there with other musicians, and he's also featured on the mural at Reggae Lane in the Eglinton and Oakwood area that's called Little Jamaica. He has been performing for over 50 years and uh, remembered, you know, various people. When I saw him recently, he was with Wesley Anderson, who is the brother of Rita Marley, uh, who was the wife of, of Bob Marley. And, 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 and he could tell me that when Rita came here with her group, the Solettes, before the eye trees, Rita was performing with a group that, you know, Rita's brother, Wesley, uh, was who she stayed with. And she performed at the Royal York Hotel. And, and so whenever you talk to Jay, there's just all this history that he can share with you about music in Toronto. And 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 he goes back, way back in in telling the stories. So yes, I, I I I'm I'm happy that he's he's being recognized for his outstanding contribution to to music. Neil, um, I'm glad that you've uh, been honored in several places uh, here in Toronto, um, because you definitely do your part in bringing um, you know events from the. Uh, Caribbean Black diaspora to our attention. And I want to thank you for that. And thank you for joining me today. 
Um, it was a, it's been a wonderful conversation. Now, where can people uh, follow you and reach out to you? I, I'm my blog for sure will will have some of these stories that I tell. Uh, so it's anglescovered.blogspot.com. My work is featured in the Gleaner newspaper online in Caribbean camera. I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, but uh, those are those are the places to find me. Mm-hmm. Neil, thank you so much. I'm glad that we could do this.